Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. After years of truly exhaustive research, David Bordwell has completed his book, Reinventing Hollywood, How 40s Filmmakers Changed Movie Storytelling. Combing through screenwriting manuals, personal correspondence, film reviews of the era, and more, Bordwell traces the evolution of techniques like flashbacks, voiceover, dreams, and different points of view, all of which came into widespread usage in the 40s. I spoke with Bordwell about this period of wild experimentation along with... Imogen Sarah Smith. I'm a writer for Film Comment, Criterion, author of several books. Here's our conversation. I have to say it was such a thrill to read Reinventing Hollywood because it's just, it's so fun to read something that is has a formal focus and not necessarily something that it's like Hollywood, the magical dream factory <laughs> of several million people came together and manufactured these things of the 1940s. No, it's sort of talking about how in the 1940s, roughly 1939 to 1952, Hollywood spent more on A pictures instead of just filling slots with their Bs because people had more disposable income because of the war and tracing these things like flashbacks, which uh, in 1944, there were more flashbacks used in Hollywood movies than for all of the 1930s, which is crazy. And just sort of approaching those things that we kind of take for granted now, talking about like the necessity of this uneven distribution of information and how the development of these formal techniques was really just, they had these very practical purposes and for the purpose of telling a story, right? So I wanted to start by asking you, Throughout the book, you address, you know, the question of like autorism within a system of multiple authors with these little interludes. And I guess, why did you decide to structure the book this way? Because it, it is interesting to sort of dive in deep into something like amnesia and then go into, uh, you know, talking about Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You really characterized the book well. It was an attempt to do something I hadn't seen people doing before, mm -hmm. which is to look at not just certain genres or certain trends like, say, film noir, but rather to look at sort of a whole set of craft conventions that filmmakers had that they could draw on for really any genre or any trend. So, for instance, what you find when you look, if you think of film noir, okay, voiceover, flashbacks, uh, problematic protagonists. And, but then you start to look at other genres and you find the same thing, that these techniques were pretty widespread and that people almost seem to be competing in ways to innovate within those techniques, almost in a kind of, if not a show-offish fashion, at least in a sense that they're making the movies for other filmmakers as much right. as they're making them for audiences, which I think does bring the author issue in, but in a way that maybe have not, has not been emphasized as much. Plus, there are so many books on, on auteurs of the 40s, as there are genres of the 40s, it wasn't clear to me I could contribute a lot in that dimension, but I do think that we get a different perspective on the most significant filmmakers when we understand that sort of uh, backdrop or the, let's say, the menu that they're working mm -hmm. with, the choices that they're making. So that we, uh, one of the things that came interestingly out for me was that we think of Hitchcock and his films of the 40s very much as expressions of the Hitchcock vision of the world or whatever. But actually, in a way, Hitchcock has sort of set a certain standard for one of the genres, the thriller. And then he had to look around and see that other people are competing with him. And mm -hmm. other people are turning out these, quote, Hitchcockian thrillers. And even the critics are calling them Hitchcockian thrillers. Right. And so what does the individual filmmaker do when suddenly there's, they're in a race 
a kind of escalation with these other filmmakers. And interestingly, Hitchcock tries to do different things. If you think about a film like Under Capricorn, or even a film like Rope or Lifeboat, uh, you see him saying, okay, I'm not going to give people what they expect. I'll give them Notorious, but then I'm going to give them something else that can, I, can, I can tweak those other things with the Hitchcock touch. And of course, for him, it was partly a matter of setting himself, as you said, a very distinct formal problem. How do mm -hmm. I make a movie in a single locale? Or how do I make a movie uh, in, with very, very long takes, as in Under Capricorn and Rope, and so on? So there's a sense on which I think we understand auteurism better when we see them, uh, individual creators, in the context of what the creative options are that are themselves changing rapidly. I mean, one of the most exciting things to me about the 40s is that these things are just turning on a dime. I mean, people put it, come out with Citizen Kane, and then every, like, year, two years later, everybody is trying these various techniques. Not all from Citizen Kane, but certainly can be referenced to it. And the other thing I, I think that's important is that there's a lot of money to be made. In a yeah. way, and you put, touched on this, it was hard to lose money in the 40s with a film. <laughs> yeah. It really was. They managed to do it by the end of the, of the decade. <laughs> they definitely managed to do it. And David O. Selznick probably did it better than anybody. But nevertheless, you could really just kind of pump this stuff out there. And the audience was happy to take it, which meant that you could try lots of different things. If you think of the, the great age of the B film, it is the 1940s. Mm -hmm. uh, it's partly because B films had that kind of swagger. They could count on an audience, you know, watching their movie. So uh, to me, that whole context is so exciting because it puts auteurism in the frame of a kind of competition, cooperation among these filmmakers and trying to push the boundaries of what they can say and how they can say it. Yeah, I have to say, I think with your approach in this book, it's one of the best accounts I've ever read of this kind of paradox of how did the Hollywood studio system, which seems in many ways, you know, it's often compared to a factory. It's so people talk about how formulaic films were, how, you know, the, the, the moguls, the studio heads were, were so crass and, you know, they didn't, you know, want to give any freedom to their craftspeople or their stars. And, and, and yet so many great films were made and how did that happen? And by really delving into this idea of, okay, well, there were formulas you can say, but they're really, as you say, these kind of menu options that people are playing with. They're, you know, taking all these different elements. And that also helps to kind of understand the problematic nature of writing in Hollywood, because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I love about your book is that it is totally focused on narrative and, and structuring mechanisms of films. So it's about writing, but as we all know, you know, except for a few of the people who are really at the top of their game, few writers got to just write a script. It was passed around. It was, it's hard to know who really deserves the credit. So your whole concept of, you know, cooperative competition and, uh, or, or competitive cooperation <laughs> or however, however you put it, yeah, yeah. um, you know, and this idea of everybody kind of having this big array of things they were playing with, you know, helps us, I think, to understand how you get both the real sort of towering achievements of 40s films and also just such a kind of depth of good, worthwhile, <laughs> watchable Interesting, films. Interesting, you know? uh, intriguing, it, weird. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. 
Um, you said that better than I could because there's a way in which all these uh, options are mingling and mixing in ways that are completely unpredictable. It can show up in all kinds of ways. And as you say, the writing is important. It's one of the most interesting things for me in working on the book over about eight years was I, I never really had worked much with filmmakers as writers before uh, or um, the writing side of directorial works, as with, say, Mankiewicz. But um, it became quite fascinating when I looked at scripts and script variants and things that were in our collection, um, and to see how much of this stuff is out there in popular culture, and is the, the writer is kind of the mediator between what's out there in, say, popular fiction, or on the stage, mm -hmm. or radio, and then comes into films. I mean, a great example, I find, sitting right in our archive in Madison, Wisconsin, is the collection of Vera Caspery who right. is a tremendous figure for the 40s. Very, very important, I think. I am a big fan. Yeah, now you're talking. Uh, yeah. She, um, you know, she starts as a novelist. Lalora was originally a play. She wrote it as a play and then couldn't get it produced. And so she wrote it as a novel, which was serialized, and she got a lot of money for it. And then um, wound up uh, with a successful novel and then a film that was based on it. And then she started to write screenplays, which owe a lot to what she was doing in fiction. And she is one of many women who were writing at the time, mystery writers, who w wound up in Hollywood or had their works adapted for Hollywood. And they're transmitting all these different narrative strategies from what was essentially a new genre, the domestic thriller, the woman in peril movie, uh, plot, I should say, and, uh, and bringing those into Hollywood. So for instance, we think of Hitchcock's Rebecca, but it's really Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, and one of the best-selling books of the entire era. And that structure of the book wasn't completely retained in, in the film, but nevertheless, it set the tone for a whole range of narrative options that would come later. So there's a sense in which, um, for me, it was a real discovery, just as you said, of how important the writer is as a kind of uh, intersection of all these different forces coming together, even though they're not usually given a lot of credit for, for doing that. Uh, they, we think of the directors as, as the most important, but actually the writers are, are passing these stratagems of narrative down through into the studio system, and then the directors can build on them. I also just have to say that the thoroughness of the book in terms of the number of films that you <laughs> reference is truly awe-inspiring. I mean, as yeah. I was reading it, and I, you know, the 40s is sort of my, one of my specialties. I think I know that decade pretty well. And every single time I would think, oh, what about this film? You know, the next page, oh. you would, <laughs> you would, you know, <laughs> check that off. And that's um, neat. That's neat. And it, and it is really interesting the way that, as you say, you see these certain techniques existing across different genres in the way, you know, all of these things, noir and these kind of supernatural films and ghost stories. But then, you know, you see the same kind of thing starting to come into comedies and mm -hmm. musicals. And um, yep. that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the, I love the fact that your book doesn't have a focus on a particular genre. Yeah, that was important for me because it's been done so many times and the depth is, is there and all those other literature and all that rest of that literature. And I also, I, I appreciated that there was, in addition to the sheer volume of films, there are just so many different sources that you're drawing from to sort of back up your arguments, either, you know, like screenwriting manuals, memoirs, things that critics were saying at the time, you know, critics being like, the flashback is so hackneyed, the flashback plot is so hackneyed, and it's like, fall of 1941 it's like wait like, what are you talking about like and they're like what is this stupid fad gonna end and then it's like no it sort of helps define the decade which is so fascinating but i wanted to ask 
do you find that there was sort of thinking now about things maybe not included in the book, do you find that there is maybe a connection between these new or newish narrative techniques in film and the performance styles or, you know, visual techniques that were, you know, emerging in the decade too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, there are three or four different areas I just didn't get into. A couple of them I have worked on before, particularly visual style mm-hmm. uh, in the 40s. I wrote about that in a couple of other books. And so I, I felt it would be not only redundant, but off target in a way. But two areas, I agree with you completely, should, have, should be covered, even though I'm not sure I couldn't bear to make that book any longer. And w- <laughs> one of them is performance, mm-hmm. which is so hard to discuss. The, I mean, you know, there are good there are critics who are good at describing performance, like Pauline Kael, but they're not necessarily good at analyzing it in the sense of the of the craft of the actor. They're very good at describing how it yields an impression for the audience, a vivid a kind of vivid account of what it looks like for Mitchum or Brando or whoever to act, uh, but maybe not so much how they do it. You know, the mechanics of it, and that interests me a lot, actually, more and more as I get older. Um, so I did a little bit with this in a Criterion um, uh, channel item that's coming up soon on Brute Force. It's coming out next week, actually. On, again, Burt Lancaster mm-hmm. in Brute Force and try to break down his performance into kind of almost like uh, Lev Kuleshov engineering, you know, break, <laughs> how did he move his eyes? How did he move his hand? How does he shift his shoulders? Things like that. So that interests me, but also something that I'm just too ignorant to write about, and that's music. Music is tremendously important in films of the 40s. And I have a colleague back at Wisconsin, Jeff Smith, who's very good on this. And he's writing about Hollywood scores in the 30s and 40s now. So I would expect he would have a lot to say about that. But there's a lot of good work on on, uh, scoring in in the 40s. So again, I felt it's kind of been covered. But in a way, I should have said more about it, I think. What really interests me about this question, about what might be the intersection between narrative structures and performance styles is partly, you know, the question of did things like voiceover and these flashback structures lead lead actors or require actors to be acting in a different way, as well as something else you write about really well in the book, the all the emphasis on subjectivity and psychology that mm-hmm. came into 40s films, which is something I've thought a lot about and mm-hmm. wrote a lot about. Um, particularly in the context of noir. But, you know, I'd never really thought about this before. But, you know, when I was just thinking about this before our conversation today, suddenly thought, you know, that kind of impassive style that becomes very important in the 40s. I mean, that again, we associate mostly with noir, but it but appears in other ways, this kind of, you know, everything being sort of internalized and and this almost sort of sleepwalking sort of dreamy style you know, makes a lot of sense if, you know, you're an actor and you know that there's actually going to be a voiceover, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's your voiceover or, or somebody else, you know, describing some kind of interior subjective state, you don't really want to also be enacting that state with, with a lot of facial (laughs) acting or it would become very redundant. Oh, I think that's really neat. I think that's a really neat idea and very true. I think what you find, I tried to characterize it a couple points, but again, I didn't really emphasize it probably enough. In a way, what you get with most 1930s performances, you might call behavioral acting, right. where everything is external. I'm not saying it's hammy necessarily, though it can be, but rather it's just a sense that you'd be able to just read off 
the characters' mental states, typically not just even through their face, because 30s actors really know how to use their bodies, the stance, the way they yes. shift their weight, gesture, everything, necks, everything. Uh, but in the 40s, I, I completely agree with you. I think there is a kind of new interiority and a kind of neutralization mm -hmm. of the acting performance that's intense, almost silent film style. And one of the themes of the book, as you know, is the idea that a lot of silent cinema comes back in the 40s. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but you think of Joan Crawford or almost any of the, of the major actors, not so much Cary Grant maybe, but Stewart, for instance, and how these medium shots focusing on these actors with voiceovers or subjective monologues kinds of things, they don't have to do that much, but they're very right. intense. And they're staring, and, they're, and, you're, and you're staring at them as you're hearing this. You know, mm -hmm. it's a real, it's a different kind of relationship we have to the performer than we do with, say, Carol Lombard in uh, 20th century with John Barrymore, where you know everything is externalized. Right. I mean, I've, I'm often struck, particularly with Hollywood films of the early 30s, by the sense of it almost being like people don't have interior psychology. There's never that kind of focus on people's, you know, internal states is, or clumsy. their problems. It's, you know, it's all about the world outside them. And then in the 40s, suddenly it's all about what's going on inside. That's neat because it correlates the idea that in the 30s, you have a, almost a kind of social conditions right. mechanism for causal change. That is, what makes somebody some, like a gangster or what makes a society girl yeah. is, is, is sick or is neurotic. <laughs> that's what I, that's or, right. You know? It's and all then out in the there 40s, and you get like infected. People are isolated. There's no sense of them belonging yeah. to a larger yep. society. Yep. But, and they're figuring but, it all out as they go through. Yeah. That makes then, a lot of sense, I think. You know, actors are also being called upon to, you know, enact dreams. You talk mm -hmm. also right. wonderfully about dream sequences right. Right. or to express, you know, these different layers of time. You know, I'm really yeah. interested in the the depiction of time on film and how as an actor do you do, you do that flashback thing where you're going into somebody's memories. Yep. So, yep. No, I think that's right. There's a way in which even... Um, there are these, uh, there, there's one strain that runs through the 40s that kind of continues the 30 behavior, 30s behavioralism, I think. And you might think of it in terms of the ordinary films and made by classic directors like Hawks or, or Ford or even some of the Minnellis like Meet Me in St. Louis, where it's quite externalized. Mm -hmm. But then you get a performance like Judy Garland's in Meet Me in St. Louis, <laughs> where suddenly it is completely interiorized. There's no flashback, there's no voiceover, but you're staring at this woman you're watching someone think, you know? How often do you get to watch somebody think in a 1930s film, you know? Uh, and so that sense, I think you're, you're right on target with that. There's a way in which by the 40s, they're rethinking narrative and thinking, okay, if we have subjective narratives, then we've got these very sensitive vessels, these characters who are uh, really quite alert to all kinds of things in their environment. Maybe we can downplay traditional acting you know, gestures and so forth, and just let the audience soak that in, you know, soak that quality of their thoughtfulness or their fear or whatever that emotion is in a very intimate kind of way. I think that is tied to it. And in fact, it does, then you have these sort of superstructures like memory, flashbacks and fantasies and things like that, kind of just reinforcing that interiority. You know, you talk a lot about how these techniques are now very, um, threaded into, you know, contemporary filmmaking in an interesting way. I mean, have you seen Zama? I have any, seen Zama. Okay. And like the, cause I, cause I think Zama brings up an interesting question because it's sort of 
all I feel like all of Lucretia Martel's films do this, but she's really pushing on the limits of it's very psychological, it's very subjective, but also pushing at the limits of narrative confusion. Yeah. And I guess yeah. it's a film that needs voiceovers but doesn't have them. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, I think that's right. I think, I think you're right. There's one way to look at it and say the Tarantinos and the, and the others have so assimilated these techniques. I mean, not even just them. Ordinary cinema. I mean, you go see anything now, and it's mm-hmm. going to have flashbacks. Yeah, it's going to have voiceovers. It's going to have all these things that in the '40s were kind of new. Uh, but when you get to films that sort of say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be more behavioral. Like, say, the Meyerowitz stories, mm-hmm. which is trying for something like that more 30s, I think, mm-hmm. detachment, not really, you're observing the characters and trying to figure them out. And though there are some identification processes probably going on, it's still pretty much detached. And you find that filmmakers are kind of forswearing that, as, as Martel does. That's pretty interesting, too. Though, of course, The Headless Woman is a I've never tried to work it out, but I've got to, I'm pretty convinced that's a flashback movie <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. No, the period that you write about, you see that there is this real um, attempt to push things forward in yeah. a way that, you know, and break new ground. And then as you, you know, you also point out sort of uh, gentlemanly competition, let's yeah. say, uh, between well, they're these... rushing on this stuff. Uh, Clearly, exactly. they're completely enjoying this. And yes. we have to never forget, a lot of these are young people. Exactly. These are, you know, Wells is the prototype, of course. Mm-hmm. You've got the old guys like Hawks and Ford and, and to some extent Hitchcock, but a lot of these are young filmmakers, not necessarily auteurs for us today, but Minnelli or someone like that. Um, and they're all like picking this stuff up right away because they all want to advance in their careers. They want to make films that are interesting. They are seeing everything. One of the most astonishing things I found watching, uh, going back through Hollywood Reporter and Variety, was these people really went to the movies. I mean, we mm-hmm. think that kids today are cine- the filmmakers anyway, are cinephiliacs. But these people saw movies every night. They went to premieres. They had screenings for themselves in the day at the studio. And they would go to people's houses at night, where it turns out, and this is something I'd love to write about if I could find more data, producers could borrow pictures from rival studios and show them in their homes mm. at night at no charge. They just have to pay their projectionists and so on. But they just get these things shipped to them. It's just like, again, competitive cooperation, seeing mm. what your competition is up to. So these people are just soaking in movies. Not all of them. I mean, Ford, I don't think was. But a lot of them were. Dory Sherry saw a movie almost every night. And they're constantly plucking these ideas, I think, from each other trying to tweak them and spin them just as people do nowadays when they see something on cable and say, I could do that, but I could do it differently, you know? Yeah. So it's this kind of crazy immersion that they had in their own film culture. And of course, the war isolated them that way. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't much else to do. (laughs) Hollywood was still a fairly small city. And basically, they could drink, they could screw each other, and they could, you know, go to the movies. Well, I was going to ask, as like, you, you know, you briefly mentioned thing, you know, seeing something on cable and then maybe doing it better in a film. I guess I don't maybe you could speak to this better than I could. But just the sense of like, do you do you have that sense of like friendly competition or sort of like trying to push things forward now or it's sort of like trying to outdo now or not really? I think among certain filmmakers, it's there. It mm-hmm. has been there, certainly among the boys' club filmmakers. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly De Palma, Scorsese, right. that group, they're trying. I mean, the famous examples are with the Steadicam. How long can you make this take? <laughs> so we have Snake Eyes, which is one of the earliest uses mm-hmm. of digital compositing to enhance the length of a take. And we won't go necessarily where that implies. Right. But basically, uh, they're clearly uh, you know, competing with each other in that narrow sense. 
I think more generally, you know, you think of that scene in um, The Player where, where the, the Tim Robbins character is being pitched all these different stories, you know, and again, it's, it's a switcheroo scene because right. it's out of Africa meets Pretty Woman, that sort of thing. But then at one point, someone describes a scene to him and he says, I haven't seen that before, you know? I mean, there's a sense in which not all of the moguls, but many were kind of connoisseurs of what, what worked and what didn't work, and they had good memories. Zanuck, who emerges from me and is one of the heroes of my research, Zanuck was a man who clearly breathed and slept movies. Mm -hmm. After he was full days working on films, he went home at night and watched movies and showed them to his, his uh, employees. And this guy would say, well, we could do this, or we could do that, or we could do that. And clearly he's like stealing things from all these different films and playing with the possibilities. We might have had in Laura a scene where Dana Andrews goes to the movies and sees actresses on the screen all of whom are Laura. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, clearly they're constantly playing with this. They're movie crazy. Yeah, I like the way you, you brought that out because when we think of a lot of filmmakers today, we're very aware of them drawing, you know, being lovers of old movies and, mm -hmm. and drawing from things and, and doing obvious sort of homages mm -hmm. to older films. And we don't tend to think of filmmakers of the 40s doing that. But as you point out, it really was a decade in which that was really, you know, the idea of of studying film and watching older films and so forth really was kind of taking off. And you do see people who are still, you know, hearkening back to silent films, you know, that they'd seen or um, and then also you bring up a lot of examples of um you know, the way they would embed these in-jokes, you know, references to their own films or other yep. films yep. of the time, you know, and, oh, you look like that guy in the movies, Ralph yeah. Bellamy, and that kind of, <laughs> those kind of moments that are wonderful because they convey this sense of the expectation that an entire society would have seen these movies. You know, you could expect that everyone would get these, you know, yep. or at least enough people would get yep. the jokes to make them worth yep. making. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's that same expectation now that you can have right. with a given that, you know, oh, everybody's going to know this film. Exactly. I mean, that's what, yeah, because it's like what the, um, like, it seemed back then the cultural reference, the, the like the scope of it was a little bit more narrow or a little bit better defined. And now there's just like mm -hmm. an explosion of so many mm -hmm. different references you could possibly make. And it's like, you know. I remember having a conversation online with somebody who didn't realize that Dr. Hibbert on The Simpsons was a parody of Bill Cosby in The Cosby Show. But it's like that it's like that's insane that someone not, would not get that reference. Right. <laughs> but it's it's but obviously but the, but then it's also a little deeper because The Simpsons was totally reacting against The Cosby Show and right. undoing sort of like the nice the family family, drama, yeah. fa family, you know, sitcom. And so it's like now it feels very I feel like except for maybe like the Simpsons, there is no like media, media lingua franca for uh -huh. people to really build off of unless they're like, unless it's very specialized and you're in like a, uh, a yeah. meme group talking about, about a very specific yeah, thing. The only example I can think of, that's an interesting point because most of those references, I think you're right, were really, are really for film geeks, for otaku. Mm -hmm. But I, the one I would think of offhand is in one of the Ocean's Eleven films, do you remember that, there's this whole business where Tess, played by Julia Roberts, is actually pretending to be Julia Roberts. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, uh, yes. Is it 12? Uh, Ocean's 12? Ocean's, one of those. <laughs> anyway, the thing is, and, there, and then Bruce Willis is in a hotel lobby and she walks by and he says, he says, oh, Julia, you know, <laughs> and then he starts talking about how some film, uh, he talks about how... Uh, 
don't anybody tell me that they knew I was dead already, you know? So there's a <laughs> reference to, you know, of the sixth sense and, and so on. And I, that's the only one I can think of where they really seem, but it's Soderbergh, a clear movie geek, right. doing this, uh, but he seemed to be clearly assuming the audience would pick up on the star persona, like with the Ralph Bellamy reference, but also a specific movie. Mm-hmm. And even he talks about box office figures in that scene. Yes. So, I mean, there's a way in which that may extend beyond the sort of the narrow realm, but I think you're right. I think that that kind of movie... But also, I think what we have now might have been there in the 40s, too, which is this layered audience where, mm-hmm. okay, who cares if the Hicks and the Sticks don't get this, really? I mean, come on. We're not making <laughs> movies for them. And, you know, and, then, and then maybe the sophisticates in New York, a couple of critics will go, oh, you guys are playing around again. But it's also for our friends in Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. Did you see what just did? Oh, yeah. For instance, I mean, there's, a, there's an Orson Welles radio program where uh, he has a, a psychiatrist who's kind of crazy. And he, his name is Herman Mankiewicz, you know, I mean, in the radio show, you know. So, I mean, how many people are going to get that? But on the other hand, clearly back home, they're all going, oh, or some stuck at the Herman Mankiewicz. <laughs> I, I would like to return to the question of pushing narrative confusion and playing with time. Have you, I'm, I'm curious, because you wrote a very interesting piece about Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Have you seen The Snowman? Because that's getting can't wait. Got to see it. Okay. Got to see it. Any movie that gets those reviews, I got to see. Okay. But I mean, I guess in terms of like films that are super recently confusing in a way that's not necessarily pushing the form forward, and they're just sort of a failure to yeah. <laughs> to contain well, it, it, narrative, it, 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 vital narrative information. What would what is one that you find interesting or sort of like I see what they were trying to do and they kind of failed. No, my my. I have a chapter, uh, kind of innovation by accident, right. and, and it's about exactly this, I think, yeah. which is how they're trying for lots of different things, but it didn't gel, and maybe there are these conflicting impulses, and the result was this kind of mess that you don't understand. And, and my favorite is that film, The Chase, mm-hmm. where I defy you to figure that <laughs> film out, and yet it's completely captivating, to me anyway, because it's got such a crazy mixture of elements that, and I finally wound up finding a script for it and trying to track down on the blog, not in the, my book, but a series of blogs that I think only nine people bothered to look at. But um, <laughs> that, that this thing was a complete mess at the level of production. And so this happens from time to time where yeah. these, it's even there in Laura. There are incompatibilities yeah. in Laura mm-hmm. that, that are due to the changes in production. And in a way, I mean, the one side of that is, okay, it's a failure. Artistically, it's a failure. But on the other hand, But in a way, these glitches kind of become interesting and something that people can work on productively. If you think of somebody like David Lynch, these are the kinds of incompatibilities that his work is built on. You know, I mean, the Red Room, what are the the rules here? You know, Mm -hmm. I don't understand the rules. Yeah, it's well, it's interesting um, when we think, especially of old Hollywood, we always assume that you know, they really believed that everything had to be clear and you didn't want to confuse your audience. And you quote several times from critics, you know, who are sort of passing judgment on saying, well, this was too confusing, you know, audiences are not going to get this. And, you know, again, going back to film noir, which is unavoidable, my, my, for, unavoidable for me, um, you know, but there are a lot of, of those. I mean, I have never found anybody who could explain Lady from Shanghai to me, which I cannot follow <laughs> for the life of me. And I, 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 and I think of myself, yes. and, you know, yes. again, a film that was that was a mess in production. And, you know, maybe if it hadn't been edited the way it was, you know, maybe something just got and I mean, you know, Robert Mitchum would joke during the making of Out of the Past, which actually is a film that I think is possible to follow. Yeah. But yeah. he would say, you know, don't tell anybody, but I think they lost a few pages in Mimeo. <laughs> you know, right. That even the 
actors and people always talk about the big sleep and the yeah. idea that nobody knew yeah. who had committed one of the murders that that you know with noir in a sense though confusion and, and anxiety are sort of part of what they are trying to evoke and so it becomes a question of at what point is confusion you know mean failure right and at what point is it actually you know an a a Satisfying, sa- satisfying, thing. or takes it to another level takes anyway. It to yeah. another level in yeah. a way, and film. You know, I like the chase a lot, and of course, like so many of those films, it's about a kind of damaged veteran. You know, somebody who has am- amnesia, and so that the sense of confusion is sort of putting you into his inability to, you know, understand the world in a coherent way. So, but um, and it, but it yeah. also makes for. Uh, a film that is so elliptical in many ways. No, I think you're right. I think that what's interesting about a lot of these films is that they could be made more clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back to The Big Sleep, say, there's a way to tell that story in a clear fashion. It's just that Howard Hawks is not interested right. in this. And, and well, Lee Brackett was not. And Lee Brackett, I mean, you know, Hawks is like, have three good scenes and don't right. annoy the audience and you're set. But there's a sense in which also, in trying to build those plots, they, they, um, they avoided the things that that uh, would have made their, their work easier. So, for instance, a classic case with something like The Big Sleep is that you would embed flashbacks to exactly what Carmen did, exactly what, you know, you have whole characters who are mentioned all the way through and are never shown, you know, mm-hmm. well, okay, let's show some of them and so on. And the, it could be made, quote, clearer, but Hawks didn't, and Lee Brackett presumably didn't well, want and, to do and that. Chandler himself didn't care about plot, not, well, no, also. Because the way he made his like books, he yeah. Didn't, it well, wasn't like he couldn't write a clear plot. It was that that was not what he was interested in. Well, and also, he was splicing together short stories right. to make his novels, which makes for you know, disparities. You get that epi- strange, episodic yep. quality. But, I mean, I'm really interested in the ways that um, these these chronological structures, the ways that the films are treating time structurally are also making that, that time in some of these films is also the subject. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I feel like with a lot of the greatest movies of the forties, you know, think about both Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons and how green was, was my Valley. You know, there are all these films that are about the experience of time, the, you know, the, the, the 40s just seems so obsessed with the past, the idea of, you know, the the constant pull of the past or this overwhelming feeling of kind of regret and loss. And, you know, they're using these structures to convey certain to a, a certain feeling about time and, and the use of, yeah. um, you know, ellipses can also be a way. Um, I mean, not a Hollywood film, although I think you do reference it, um, you know, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, yeah. one of my favorite films of the decade that's really a film about time that that constantly just leaves out the most important scenes like you don't actually mm-hmm. see things happen and it keeps coming back after something important has happened and the sort of cumulative effect of that is this kind of sense of loss this is amberson's again too amberson's mm-hmm. absolutely um no this is fascinating and it touches on something that i want to do more with it's a little bit in the book but i, I want to develop it more and that is the idea that again speaking roughly 30 cinema is theatrical in a certain way because it's about behavior that can be displayed, interactions that can be shown. 40 cinema becomes, in many respects, not completely, but exactly the way you're talking about it, becomes more novelistic. It's more, it's try, many of these films are trying for that density of 
present, past, future that we get in novels. You see it in uh, films like, well, obviously in Ambersons, which the uh, Henry Jamesian kind of quality to these to these films, where uh, there's almost a sense that something there's something that's happened here that we're not going to see, mm-hmm. but we're going to see everybody react right. to. Uh, you, but you get it also, I think, in films where you don't expect it. I think you get it, for instance, in one of my favorites of the 40s, which is Daisy Kenyon. Mm-hmm. Where, Ooh, where, 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 I mean, I'm looking back at my book because I've been afraid to read it, actually. I went back and looked at it today, and I have all this stuff on Daisy Kenyon. I yes, thought, what you, made me you do have this? a long discussion of that. But the thing is, it's because you can't figure these people out. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with these people? I mean, there's not a sane one in the bunch, you know? And they're contradictory from scene mm-hmm. to scene. It's not just Henry Fonda. He's not just a wounded vet. Daisy's crazy, and mm-hmm. and the and the Dana Andrews character is crazy. And I mean, they're all kind of nuts on each, each other, mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure out what do these people want? What are they trying to do to each other? And it's it's all those kinds of stratagems and cross purposes you get in a novel. And by the way, these are not in the novel. And the the little Janeway novel does not do this. Absolutely breaking the rules about, you know, characters having clear motivations, having somebody who's clearly sympathetic, whom you identify with. There's really no, everyone in the film is really ambivalent, really screwed up, you know. And to me, this is, this is, this is not Eugene O'Neill's psychodrama. <laughs> this is really like a novel that's trying to probe these very, and partially seen. I mean, part, this is where, as you say, narrative structure and narration come in. Because if we had a single protagonist, if it was all about Daisy, and we only saw mm-hmm. Daisy all the time, then we'd understand it. But we don't. We're skipping among these three characters uh, and getting glimpses of what they do. And to try to assemble these pieces of their actions into a coherent whole is very difficult. And it's also about the performance style, too. I mean, all those performances are great. And they're all actors who are totally capable of being ambiguous and ambivalent yeah. and mm-hmm. and you know evoking yeah. these contradictory responses yeah. from you where you know Dane Andrews is so charming and at the same time he's so sleazy and honey you know what does that come from you know <laughs> um, calling everybody honey butts what does that mean you know no the thing but you're right about to go back to your original mm-hmm. point that is and there's always something about the past in these things mm-hmm. their past relationships or things that are skipped over like Daisy suddenly marries the Henry Fonda character why? It happens off screen. It's gone. Now, maybe it's one of those things that gets elided because of production circumstances or whatever, but the result is still very interesting, more interesting than if we'd had a lot of internal explanation. Again, the denial of voiceover is important in that film, too. So, I mean, there's a way in which exactly what you're saying about this time thing, it springs out of, I think, what we think of as, quote, novelistic traits, like mm-hmm. characterization, depth, a multiplicity of viewpoints, a certain critical relationship on the part of the reader-viewer to, to what's happening, those things emerge more saliently in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And um, Daisy Kenyon is also, interestingly, kind of like the culmination of these four films that Preminger made with Dana Andrews, all of which are really interesting, all of which you know, have, a, and you talk about a couple of them and the ways that you know somewhere late in the film you find out something about the main character or, you know, he has this moment where he tells you about his life and suddenly you kind of understand yeah. him. Fallen Angel's great dad, Better. Yeah. Fallen Angel has that where, again, he's playing this very mixed kind of character. Um, and, and Fallen Angel's actually a, a good segue to also just mention your the way you talk about how mystery became just everywhere mm-hmm. in 40s films and is another thing that even in films that were not per se a mystery or a thriller you these techniques you know with a flashback if you open a movie with a flashback 
you're opening it, you're immediately going, okay, you know, what, how did we get here? And so you, and then it becomes this mystery to find out, you know, what the backstory is. And so everything is suddenly doing that thing of trying to evoke a, a question in your mind. And again, it's something that 30s cinema generally doesn't do. It's very much Mm-hmm. you know, happening in the present. It's and, yeah. yeah. And what's also interesting about that is how if you present, you know, you mentioned the hindsight bias and that if you allow the audience to sort of figure it out, their mind will fill those things in. Like you don't actually need to show this needless exposition. You can just rely on the fact that, you know, uh, unlike, one of my least favorite things is like, you know, sus- suspension of disbelief. No, people are always thinking when they're watching films. And this the, the, the flashback structure is a great way to sort of expediently get to certain things or create a sense of ex- suspense, even in, you know, pretty mundane th- things that should be utterly mundane. Yeah. This is what I love about this, because, for instance, you take, so, take the problem of coincidence. If you're mm-hmm. a writer, you've got to motivate it. The characters have got to meet sooner or later. Well, to have them meet at a certain point looks can look artificial. Because the more your movie goes on, the later and later they meet, it looks more and more forced to have them meet. So on the other hand, if you flash back to their meeting from a later point in the story, no problem, because they met, right? Exactly. (laughs) We know they met, you know? So it can be the most arbitrary thing. I mean, I love the way in which flashbacks can cover so much. And it was fascinating to go back and look, as you say, at those screenplay manuals where, and in in the magazines that people, for some reason, never looked at before, I think. The Writer and Writer's Digest, where screenwriters are telling people, here's what you do when you write mystery fiction or when you write a movie script and so on. Publishers Weekly even had articles about this. And they're saying things like, Here's what you do. Here's how you do it. And use a flashback if you have to. And some writers are saying, no, no, flashbacks are lazy. Voiceover is lazy. All this stuff. You've got to tell your story straightforwardly. And people are saying, we don't care. <laughs> we'll just keep doing it. Yeah. No, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Well, voiceover, I mean, is something that I very much feel can be good or bad. And a lot of people, even who love 40s films are really put off by those omniscient kind of stentorian voice oh, of, you know, the Reed Hadley kind of, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. voice of God yeah. narration. It does at times become very heavy handed, which is something, I mean, I think we associate it with the 40s. I've certainly seen recent films that I felt really had a heavy handed use of narration that just excessively kind of Oh, yeah. told you exactly you know what this movie is about mm-hmm. to make sure you're not going to miss the theme by having mm-hmm. the characters sort of explain everything to you but to me where it really works it's it's not just you know the subjective voiceover but and and this is something you talk about in a wonderful section on Sturgis is the idea of a kind of cinematic use of sound in the sense that there's a general assumption that whatever is visual is cinematic and anytime it's dialogue or voiceover or sound is somehow less cinematic, but that there can be a way for even voiceover to be used in a cinematic way where when it creates a kind of dis, you know distinct kind of sound that becomes part of, of the atmosphere and the mood of the movie and, you know, that's what really works in something like Out of the Past or, you know, Force of Evil or something where the mm-hmm. the voiceover almost becomes like a score. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really functioning almost in a musical Absolutely. way. Yeah, this ties in again to this novelistic thrust because once you have a voice either of a character displaced in time or a character's mind or a non-character narrator, you add a layer to the movie that can 
benefit the movie or not, obviously, depending on how it's used. But I think of how all these things tie together in films that we're showing, actually, at, uh, at MOMI this weekend. For instance, Letter to Three Wives, which is kind of virtuoso in this respect, because there you've got a narrator who's a character but who's never seen. Right. You know, and she's providing a whole different perspective on what you're seeing as if she's watching the movie along with us. Mm -hmm. You know, she's commenting on their gestures mm -hmm. and things like this, like... This is kind of crazy, but she's this kind of voice of God, but she's in the story world. She knows, you know, what's going on. And that kind of playfulness is perfectly permissible as far as I'm concerned. I mean, just stretching those conventions and voiceover then becomes very useful. Or you think of somebody nowadays like Wang Garwai, he couldn't make a movie without voiceover, it seems to me. I mm -hmm. mean, because with him, the voice that's the glue that holds the whole thing together, all these moments of powerful impressions. They need some sort of you know, flow, and that's what the voiceover gives them. So it becomes a kind of floating soundtrack that becomes quite rich poetically. But all these things, I think, are already emerging in the 40s. Now, one thing I should say, uh, if anyone bothers to listen to this, is <clears throat> that much of what I'm saying is not absolutely un unique to or original with the 40s. Mm -hmm. That What I'm trying to argue is that these things are kind of their piecemeal in Hollywood cinema before before the 40s, but they get consolidated right. and then expanded and kind of go nuts and wild uh, in the 40s. So for instance, voice we do find some few films with voiceovers in the 30s, and we find films with flashbacks and replays, and the end of the very end of the 30s, you have some psychoanalytic dramas and things like that, but it's really in the 40s where there's so much money to be made and so many people striving to make you know, their own things to do innovative cinema, that it becomes kind of a, a crush together. It comes and explodes, I guess I'd say. Because, I mean, the, these are, the, the attempt to make cinema psychological, you can see that in early experimental films like The Smiling Madame Boudet, Absolutely. For, for, for instance. And it's not like people just all of a sudden were like, hey, why don't we... Yeah. Put, insert this thing. It's like yeah. it was the form was developing, and obviously technology played a yeah. huge component of that, and having reliable sound and having yeah. you know, so it it is um, cyclical almost or yes. a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Something it's an interesting point because you you have something like Smiling Madame Bidet or uh, La Glace à Trois Faces mm -hmm. trying to be the subjective. But not even in the 20s and 30s would you have something really like Lady in the Lake. Right. I mean, Lady in the Lake is a good example. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but somebody had to make it. Yes. Somebody had to Someone do that. Had you to know? Try. You know? <laughs> and, well, uh, another great example, and this actually is a film that is screening at MoMA, I think this coming Friday, a film from the early 30s, um, which of course you do cite in the book. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, the Sin of Nora Moran, oh, what a which movie. is an, <laughs> one of the most incredibly ambitious and ahead of its time movies of the early 30s. Poverty Row, you know, no big stars, but it has the most complex flashbacks. flashback structure, flashbacks within flashbacks. It keeps shifting. It's almost the all stock footage, too. <laughs> the perspective keeps shifting between, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. one person's telling the story and then you're in somebody else's head, but it's unclear if these things are all kind of like one inside the other or Did you're I just kind of that? drifting no. around. Did I just dream that? And no, then there I'm are these still in your dream. Fascinating <laughs> flashbacks in which, you know, so that the, this woman who's on death row is looking back on, on her life and how she got there. But in the flashbacks, she knows what's going to happen. And she's saying, well, if I, you know, if I don't go to the door, this, you know, what's going to happen won't happen. And so... It's not just a flashback. It's like her reliving her life. In yeah. the only other film I can think of 
that has something sort of like that is repeat performance yeah. where again you have and that, that is a 40s film where someone is going back having to relive her life you know, in an attempt structured. to make it turn out differently so yeah. it's this strange use of flashbacks yeah. there, so. it's, there it's almost a fantasy premise because she just magically gets transported back a year and lives her life again whereas with Nora Moran as you say you were plunged into these layers of awareness about the past and the future that seem like completely unrealistic I mean just how could she know all this stuff no you're right that's a fascinating example and a good example of how crazy you could be in a B film because you just had to pump something out there and there are others I mean the life of Virgie Winters is a much more contained example but there you do have almost a Citizen Kane structure of a dead man and a woman recalling what she knew of him and so on so there are you know other cases it's just that in the 40s these these became higher on the menu you know they were more on the agenda is there anything you wanted to touch on because we should probably wrap up soon sadly wraps up sooner the only thing I'd add is is something Imogen already said but it was really a discovery for me which was the popularity of the idea of trying to convert almost any movie you made into a mystery mm -hmm. that to me is fascinating because it really does suggest a kind of immediate response to the audience that you have this explosion of interest in mystery and suspense in popular media of the 40s it's not that it wasn't there before but it really becomes acute then and becomes more intellectually respectable then too, mm -hmm. you know. And then, uh, and then suddenly you have major filmmakers willing to make thriller material. I mean, Hitchcock is the prime case, but virtually every major director of the '40s, okay, Ford no, but the Hawks no, but but basically <laughs> at least the up and coming, the young, all try their hands at mysteries and thrillers, not detective stories necessarily, but suspense films and psychological domestic thrillers, things like that. That was a real surprise to me, uh, although in a way, in retrospect, it makes sense because Letter to Three Wives is a mystery or All About Eve is a mystery. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a way in which that could be imbued into almost any of the genre formulas. Pursued as a Western mystery, you know? I mean, so there's a way in which this pervasiveness of, of mystery plotting, that was a real discovery, from, at least for me. I mean, it, was, it wasn't obvious to me. And might I add that we all know that the big podcast boom began with serial and other true crime podcasts. Absolutely. So it's obviously the 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 and sort of the prol proliferation of those, the proliferation of the forum, people trying out new things, like with um Well making of a murderer. Oh, I mean yeah. it, all it's, these it's, things. It's, all these things. So it's like it's it, it's sort of like how they always say like oh pornography is where you can tell where the next new technology is going to be because they're going to try it out for us. Let's say in terms of genre, yeah. <laughs> this is what um, yeah. you know nascent creative forms like to go to to sort of get a their audiences hooked and thrilled and fascinated. I won't, I won't go into details, but I do have this sort of vague and approximate theory that there are some genres that don't have strong plot premises to work with. Mm -hmm. I would say science fiction is one. Science fiction is really about the world that you create, but what story do you tell within that? Well, it's going to be an adventure story, a story of exploration, it's going to be a war story, or it's going to be a mystery like Blade Runner. I mean, it seems like there are certain genres that have narrative structure really built into them, like adventure, adventure and mystery, and others that are more like musicals have sort of a soft narrative structure built into them, and some that just are about world making. Mm -hmm. And you have to like find us. And when that happens, as with the boom of science fiction, then you get um, you know, mystery and adventure plotting as the basis. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's it's interesting that it seems like um, in the 40s, mystery became the kind of go-to way that you grab the audience. You know, you have to do something that's going to grip the audience and make them, you know, want to stay. And 
And if you look at the 30s, it's a little bit more like a kind of vaudevillian sense of entertainment. Like you just come out and go, let me entertain you. You know, it's going to be so funny and it's going to be so lively and it's everything you're going to just want to watch. And in the 40s, instead, it's like, what can you do with any kind of story to make the audience go, well, I have to stay because I want to find out what's going to happen or what did happen. Or, you know, you you kind of posit every story as being, in some sense, a mystery or having some kind of element of suspense, you know, and, and, you know, it mystery uh, really is connected so much to the interest in psychology and the idea that, that as with sort of, you know, in, in a sense, Daisy Kenyon is the sort of where the characters are unsolved mysteries, but in a lot of the films that have a very obvious kind of Freudian yep. Um, yeah. element it's you know what is the what is the secret what is the hidden thing the in this character the cu- the puzzle of personalities mm-hmm. so it all kind of fits together yeah yeah for sure all right well sadly we'll have to end it there dear listener but before we do it would be great if we talked about a film that we've seen recently that we liked i'll go first i rewatched for the first time since i was a child a lady in white which is a very bizarre film from 1988 entirely self-funded by this first and last time director it's sort of like a mix of uh, it's it's generally classified under horror although it is really more like a drama a historical drama where people die mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very mm-hmm. it's very it's not scary at all it's just very so it has like these elements of like spielberg and then like goofy Italian grandparents slapstick and then um, child murders and then a like trying to deal with racism. And it's just very bizarre. But there are definitely like these moments. And again, you want to talk about there's a framing device like you know, it's a it's a flashback film and we never flashback to the present. We just are left in the past. <laughs> very. Yeah. Good enough. Uh, good enough for the uh-huh. 40s. Good enough for 1988. But it's a. Uh, yeah, it's there are moments. I'm not going to say that I'm a huge fan of it, but it is just like fascinating to watch. And it, there are just so many beautiful moments. And even though this, the sort of like the resolution is kind of hackneyed, it is very interesting that this guy was so compelled to tell this story. And I'm, I always, I don't know, uh, an interesting failure. So, so I just saw Mecre Sets a Trap, mm-hmm. which is the um, Jean Delanois film that's just been re released by Kino Lorber. It's Jean Gabin. It's 1958, I think. It's a very, very classical policier. Again, a sort of formula, um, one which I, you know, I, I sometimes find can be sort of plotting, you know, and it's about the police and their methods. But this is absolutely, you know, just so beautiful. It's it's so beautifully done and it's filmed on location in Paris. Wonderful settings. Wonderful kind of sense of street life and all these little details. And of course, it's Jean Gabin. And, you know, he's middle-aged, sort of overwhelmingly weary. And, you know, on the surface, it can, it can, it can seem like this kind of weary, you know, aging character. He's and his performance, you know, as as always with with Gabin, you know, it kind of looks like he's not doing anything, <laughs> and yet he's doing everything. And there, like there was this moment, I think it's the first scene where you see him at home with his wife, and she makes him a cup of coffee, and they're talking, and then he gets a phone call, and he goes into the other room, and he's talking on the phone about the case, 
and his wife comes in and brings him the coffee so he can keep drinking it. And he just, in the middle of this phone call, he just like gives her this little smile and this kind of warmth comes out of his face. And it just seems to tell you everything about the entire history of this marriage and, you know, their relationship just in this little throwaway moment. And, you know, to me, he is just the greatest film actor pretty much. And the film itself kind of matches that sense of it's not overtly trying to do anything new. It's very much following a, a format we all recognize, but it's just the craftsmanship of it and the care that went into it. Um, I really enjoyed it. So It's funny you mention that because I went on a, a heist film binge recently and I watched uh, Touche Pas au Guisby, oh, you know, which where he just... How can you make it so fascinating to watch an old guy walk across a room, you know? <laughs> or and, or and brush his teeth brush his or teeth, make the bed. You know, or making his bed for his buddy, you know, all this stuff. You're going, this is fascinating. You can make a whole movie. Forget Jean Dillman. I mean, let's just follow this guy around. But it's, it's. I completely agree with you about Gabin, but I have not seen that McVeigh film you mentioned. I need to see that. Well, if you talk about recent films in theaters, I saw, let's see, The Foreigner, which was just exactly what you would expect. It was it was interesting to see Jackie not doing many of the other Jackie things I expected. But I guess the film I saw most recently was the Leo McCary, The Milky Way with Harold mm. Lloyd. Because I'm doing some work on Criterion, with Criterion on a, on a Harold Lloyd installment for our series. And I was really impressed this time. I hadn't seen it in many, many years. But impressed at how they managed to take what was essentially comedian-centered comedy with Lloyd as the central figure and build the whole sort of 30s comic situation around him with lots of other Lionel Stander, you know, and all these other act actors from the 30s. And he fitted in very well. And he played as a team player. He was not just the star, though he got his moments, certainly. He was the main main character. But they could kind of build Adolf Manju and all these other characters are f filling out these roles. And it's McCary, so you get a sense of a kind of loose flow. Everything is kind of it feels like it's a little improvised and rolled along and completely ingratiating. And I went back and read Otis Ferguson, one of my heroes on this, and uh, he got it completely. He said, well, you know, this is fine. This is the way movies can be. This is this perfectly enjoyable to make a movie this way. Hollywood figured out how to do this at last, you know. And that was the one I, I guess I made the most impression on me recently. Thank you both for coming. This was wonderful. Thanks a lot for having Thank me. Thank You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>